Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Good evening, everyone. My name is Maud Page, and I'm the Acting Deputy Director of Curatorial and Collection Development here at the Queensland Art Gallery. And I'd like to really welcome you tonight. Thank you so much for coming in such droves. I'm really excited to see all of you here. So I'd like to start by firstly acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which this event takes place. I'd also like to acknowledge here tonight the Acting Papua New Guinean Consul General in Brisbane, Ms. Magdalene Moyer, and her husband, Mr. Ronald C. C. Mr. Thomas Polum, former Papua New Guinea High Commissioner to Malaysia and former Papua New Guinea Consul General in Sydney. Captain Casper Kuiper, Honorary Consul for the Netherlands, Roxanne Martins. Mr. Derek Brown, State Director, Queensland Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Members from the Australia Papua New Guinea Association and Papua New Guinea Business Council. And finally, students from the Griffith University's Conservatorium of Music, thank you for delighting us with the music as you always do. I'd like to also note the apologies of Professor Ian Connor, Ian O'Connor, Vice Chancellor and President of Griffith University, and also of Lenine Ford, Chancellor of Griffith University. Simon Wright, Assistant Director of Programming here at the Queensland Art Gallery as well. This is our second Perspectives Asia for 2013, and we're delighted to be working again with the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University to bring you this series of invigorating, informative, and insightful talks by leaders in diverse fields discussing society, culture, and politics in the Asia-Pacific region. I'd like to particularly thank Andrew O'Neill, Director, Griffith Asia Institute, who couldn't be with us tonight, and also Natasha Vary for their close collaboration with the Gallery's Australian Centre for Asia-Pacific Art in developing and staging the Perspectives Asia program, which is now in its ninth year. It's a hugely important initiative for us providing a context for our wide-ranging exhibitions and cinema programs profiling Asian and Pacific art. It is a particular pleasure to have Mr. Ian Kemish AM as our speaker for this evening. Mr. Kemish has just completed his term as Australian High Commissioner to the independent state of Papua New Guinea. Here at the gallery, we feel very fortunate to have recently worked with Ian in this role and to have enjoyed the support and boundless enthusiasm that he and his wife, Roxanne Martins, and the team at the High Commission in Port Moresby directed towards our work with the CPIC artists for the PNG representation here in the Asia-Pacific Triennial of Contemporary Art. I would particularly like to take this opportunity to thank you personally for that tonight. A little bit more about Mr. Kemish. He has also served as Federal Ambassador to the Federal Republic of Germany, a post during which he was also accredited Ambassador to Switzerland. Prior to this, Mr. Kemish was First Assistant Secretary, International Division in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Mr. Kemish's overseas service includes Vienna and Brunei, and he has also worked on secondment with the New Zealand Ministry of External Relations. Mr. Kemich's presentation this evening is titled, as you can see, Papua New Guinea in Transition, What It Means for Australia, and will explore the extent of changes underway in our nearest neighbouring country. Charting recent economic, social and political developments, Mr. Kemich will engage in both the strength and challenges facing this country and its leadership as it looks towards its 40th year of independence and what has been, in what has been dubbed an Asian century. 
always of strategic geographic significance, how Papua New Guinea it sees itself positioned within the wider Asia-Pacific region and in relation to Australia will be highly important. And it's extremely timely and fortunate to have the opportunity to hear Mr. Kemish's insight tonight. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Ian Kemish. Thank you so much, Maud, for that wonderful introduction. Um, as I listened to you speak a little bit about my background, I was moved to reflect on that moment when it was announced that I was being posted from a position as ambassador to Germany to, to High Commissioner to, to Papua New Guinea. Um, there were a number of people from all sorts of walks of life uh, with whom I, I came into contact at about that time who were moved to ask whom I had offended. Uh, those, those, those really in the know, and certainly every member of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, but certainly those who understand where Papua New Guinea is, where, where Papua New Guinea is placed uh, in terms of Australian interests, were more inclined to ask whom I had slept with. Um, now, I, 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 want to, I want to assure you that, that neither is true, uh, that, I, that I simply uh, expressed a very strong interest, uh, persistently and consistently, uh, towards the end of my uh, time in Germany in going to Papua New Guinea. And uh, the Government of Australia made a judgment that I was up to the job, and I'm very pleased to have uh, been there. Roxanne and I are both very pleased to have been there, spent time there, uh, and uh, to have been part of uh, an important period for Papua New Guinea. In all seriousness, I, I really do want to thank you, Maud. I want to thank the, the Galleries Australia Centre of uh, Asia-Pacific Art and the Griffith Asia Institute for this invitation. I want to congratulate both institutions for this series of presentations focusing on Australia's neighbourhood. Any contribution to public understanding of the region we inhabit is welcome. One of the key findings of the recently released Australia in the Asian Century White Paper was that as a community, government, business and academia, we need to develop and nurture greater expertise about the Asia-Pacific region. There are in fact some deep pockets of regional knowledge in Australia, including here in Queensland, but from a broad public perspective, I think that Australia's regional literacy, if we can call it that, is sometimes well below where we think it is. My central theme this evening is that Papua New Guinea is a country experiencing rapid transition, that the changes underway there have significant implications for Australia. People often like to ca categorise themselves as optimists or pessimists about Papua New Guinea. I think there's plenty of reason myself to be very hopeful for Papua New Guinea right now, but I do actually want to avoid that kind of construct. What I'd rather say is this, that as Australians, we often base our understanding of Papua New Guinea on out-of-date assumptions, informed often by some of the country's past failures. Weary cynicism will be little use to us in the years ahead. We need an approach which is attentive to the new dynamism at play to our north and is watchful for the implications for the region 
and for our own interests. Now, I don't think we should apologise as Australians for speaking in terms of our own interests about Papua New Guinea. I've spent many years of my life in Papua New Guinea, all of my childhood. I love the place, love the people. But I was never once confused as, as Australian High Commissioner to Papua New Guinea about who I worked for. My role, of course, was to serve Australian interests in Papua New Guinea, not those of Papua New Guinea itself. In some ways, though, it's misleading to think in those terms about Australia and PNG. It's a happy coincidence that our interests in Papua New Guinea are identical with the aspirations of the people of Papua New Guinea themselves. The security, prosperity and good governance of Papua New Guinea, of Papua New Guinea contribute directly to the stability of the region we inhabit. And this, in es essence, is where our interests lie. And in any case, it would be wrong to suggest that our strong support for Papua New Guinea, including the good work done under the bilateral aid program, worth half a billion dollars this year, is motivated only by narrow self-interest. That's a different thing altogether. To make that assumption would be to misunderstand, I think, the extraordinary web of warm personal links that exist between our two countries and the extent to which Papua New Guinea gets under the skin of Australians who are exposed to the place. We diplomats often talk in terms of people-to-people -people links as central to any relationship. This happens to be particularly true in the case of Australia and PNG. There are many Australians for whom Papua New Guinea is part of their personal history. I'm confident, in fact I know, uh, that there are others in this audience who, like me, grew up in the country. There'll be others whose forebears fought and died at places like Milne Bay, at Sananda, at Isurava, on the Kokoda Track. There's also a community of present-day Australians who find it difficult to get the country out of their system. Professionals who keep returning for another project, for another posting. It's certainly true in the business sector. In government, well, there's something like 170 Australian Commonwealth officials posted to Papua New Guinea at any given time. That's in addition to about 200 locally engaged staff working at the High Commission. Many of these Australians are on their second, third, or in one case I can think of fourth posting to the country. Now, the locus of modern-day ties with PNG lies here, here in Queensland. The strongest connection of links, naturally, are in the far north of the state. Communities like Cairns see the current rapid growth in the PNG economy as representing a substantial opportunity. Two-way trade with Papua New Guinea is now worth about 7.2 billion Australian dollars. To many people's surprise, it's very much in Papua New Guinea's favour, not Australia's. Australian companies have won contracts with the LNG project, a big nation-building opportunity for the country, worth at least three billion Australian dollars. Queensland companies are by far the most active in that trade. At another level, the prominence given to PNG art at this wonderful Asia-Pacific triennial is another kind of reminder of the links enjoyed and promoted on behalf of Australia by this state. Roxanne and I were proud to host a function at our house for the CPIC artists who constructed the magnificent house Tambran and other elements of the exhibition. 
prior to their departure for Australia to begin their work. Most of them had never left the CPIC before, never mind the country. We were really struck by the quiet pride and confidence they displayed on the eve of what was no doubt a life-changing experience for them. Many months later, when we attended the opening of the triennial, we were touched by the way they welcomed us to their adopted city of Brisbane. The PNG material here, we've just been looking at it again, speaks of a, a proud and confident culture which holds true to the past but is embracing the present. So many links between the two countries, but there's a paradox, and that is that PNG is a blind spot for, for many other Australians. This can even be true in Queensland, a state whose northernmost islands lie less than four kilometres from the PNG mainland. Given what people often hear in this country about the savagery of, of PNG through the media, many would be astonished by the people of Papua New Guinea. They're a generous people. Many of us know it. An enthusiastic crowd is guaranteed to emerge immediately an expatriate's vehicle breaks down or gets bogged or slips into a ditch or, in my case, gets stuck in the middle of a raging river. Um, while this can be alarming to a newcomer, they'll invariably only be anxious to get you on your way. They're hard-working people. As employers in regional Australia have discovered in the course of the Pacific Islander Seasonal Worker Pilot Scheme, the extraordinary determination and commitment that many of us have witnessed on the part of some Papua New Guinean nurses, doctors, teachers, some senior public servants in circumstances that would absolutely no doubt phase us can be truly inspiring. They're an enterprising people. I think here of young boys who take it on themselves to fill potholes in the road with compacted earth, working the hot sun in the polite hope that some drivers will stop and reward them for their efforts. Speaking of innovation and creativity, I'm reminded by seeing uh, Sean Dorney here somehow this evening of the comfort funeral directors in Port Moresby, who two years ago publicised a special offer in the national press, free embalming for mothers on Mother's Day. <laughs> even, even the criminal class is not without its strange charm. Uh, in a recent case in Port Moresby, an expatriate woman known to the High Commission was recently carjacked at gunpoint. In a disturbing and, but in some ways typical experience, she surrendered the vehicle quickly, was bundled aside, found a way home, shaken but unharmed. Two days later, she received a call from the perpetrators seeking to arrange to return the vehicle to her. They explained politely they'd only wanted to use it for a burglary and having fulfilled this objective, they no longer had any need of it. Now, for their part, Papua New Guineans understand amazingly what makes us tick. They're closely familiar with our politics, with our culture, and as we all know, when it comes to the Australian State of Origin series, every Papua New Guinean is either a Queenslander or a New South Welshman. And that is a more serious point than many of you might think. I made the point earlier that here in Australia we're underestimating a, a new kind of dynamism that's afoot in Papua New Guinea. What do I mean by that? One thing's clear, the economy is growing fast. Fuelled by significant growth in the resources sector, including particularly the construction of that LNG project I mentioned before, 
PNG's consistently been among the top 10 fastest growing economies for the last few years, growing at something like 9% in 2011 and 2012, putting it in the same company as China. The country's resource potential is enormous, and there's at least one world-class mining project set to join the significant existing ventures at Lahir, Porgara, Octeti, Hidden Valley and Ramuniko in the next few years. Meanwhile, the population is probably growing by as much as 3 per cent each year and has now reached something like 7 million. 40 per cent of the people are now estimated to be under the age of 15. By 2030, the population will have grown to 10 million. It's projected to be approaching that of contemporary Australia by 2050. This should be pretty prominent in our minds when we imagine the future shape of our nearest neighbour. A new government, led by the representative of a new generation, has emerged from the prolonged political and constitutional crisis that beset the country for a period of 12 months up till August last year. I'm happy to elaborate on that perhaps later on uh, in response to any interest, but I do want to say something quickly about the crisis in passing. I want to say that it's easy to smile about a moment in Papua New Guinea's history when it had two of everything, prime ministers, defence commanders, police chiefs, parliamentary speakers and even governors general. But a more thoughtful analysis, particularly about the way that issue was ultimately resolved uh, in a general election, despite the efforts of some to prevent it, tells us some important and positive things about PNG, including the stabilising role of consensus and reconciliation in the national culture. I think too, by the way, of course I think it, I was the High Commissioner at the time, that Australia got its own approach to that crisis just right. But moving on from the crisis, one of the first priorities of the O'Neill government has been to arrange an amendment to the constitution which guarantees political stability, or at least parliamentary stability, for 30 months by prohibiting parliamentary votes of no confidence in that period. What should we make of Peter O'Neill and his team? Well, I think they're acutely conscious that significant economic opportunities have been missed before, and they seem determined to try and avoid that happening again. What else? They grew up in an independent Papua New Guinea. This and the new wealth at the country's disposal makes them more confident in dealing with the outside world and more inclined to take external relationships on their merits. They still regard Australia as their key natural partner. I fundamentally believe that to be true. But don't hesitate to make it clear that donor partners, including Australia, should align their support with the objectives and strategies of the national government. Translating economic growth into real development will be their ultimate test, and whether they can achieve this is the core question in Papua New Guinea today. They face some, some serious challenges. Some of them flow from the very economic growth on which the future of the country depends. The terms resource curse and Dutch disease are familiar to all educated Papua New Guineans, and increased revenues do not of themselves, of course, guarantee development for all. Public sector weaknesses and the extent to which corruption has infected this sector will be a real challenge on capitalising on this opportunity. I'm not, saying anything, I'm not saying anything controversial here. These are things that you'll hear very clearly from the government of Papua New Guinea itself. 
Perhaps above all, though, much more needs to be done to promote a stronger role for women in national decision-making if the country is to realise its true potential. Meanwhile, infrastructure, hospitals, schools have declined very significantly over the years. On the upside, the accessibility of education is actually improving. Enrolment rates are up and quite significantly up. But building and maintaining quality education is a real challenge. Maternal mortality, one of the scandals of Papua New Guinea, is the highest in the region. Preventable diseases remain widespread, and for many, medical services are non-existent. Parts of the country, the autonomous region of Bougainville, is recovering still from the most serious conflict the Pacific's seen since the Second World War, and its future status within the country is not yet entirely resolved. I believe, however, that the Bougainville story uh, in recent years has been a very positive one. More generally, the law and order situation remains a significant impediment to the country's development. Now, Papua New Guineans know that. They don't need to hear that from a former Australian High Commissioner. Um, uh, they're usually too busy telling you that themselves. Um, and that's credit to the uh, free open and confident nature of, uh, of PNG society. You're not going to get away with listening to me speak without me giving a bit of a plug to the aid program. I won't spend long on it, I promise. But I, I do want to say that through the development partnership, Australia is working to help, help is the key word, ameliorate some of those challenges. Among many other things, it's saving thousands of lives through the delivery of medicine to PNG's 2,700 functioning hospitals and aid posts and through the training of hundreds of midwives and nurses. It's all also helping make education accessible through a direct subsidy program, through the building of classrooms and the delivery of millions of textbooks. The number of female court magistrates has increased from 10 in 2004 to more than 700 this year, thanks to the Australian Aid Program. Some of the best organisations in PNG, Divine Word University, the Alatau and Vanamo General Hospitals, the Maritime Training College in Madang, the best church-run education and health services, are strong first because of local leadership, but boosted by Australian support. That's all great, it's all true, but it's not central to the future of Papua New Guinea because no external aid program, including Australia's very significant one, is going to bring about lasting change in PNG. The core necessary ingredient for success, as all Papua New Guineans will tell you, is for the government of Papua New Guinea to show a new kind of leadership, to lift service delivery across the country. I'm convinced that the current government of Papua New Guinea wants to do just that. It also has to be said that the problem is too big for the government of PNG to cope with alone. The national government is coming to recognise that other local organisations are often in a stronger position than government itself to deliver important services, such as health and education. The churches are a case in point. They currently provide at least half of the education and health care in the country, and they provide these services, services at a level of quality which the government often cannot match. Government funding to boost 
church-run services should be a significant part of the mix going forward. The government can also look to apply this principle of partnership better in its dealings with the corporate sector, particularly the resources industry, which has a great deal of experience and capacity to offer in the development process. Donor countries, led by Australia, can also certainly help, but will need to adjust their approaches as PNG itself changes. Our focus now needs to be much more strongly on helping PNG unlock its own potential. With that principle in mind, we've been providing PNG with technical support and advice as it works to develop well-governed and independent sovereign wealth funds to channel its mineral and petroleum wealth into development. Education and skills development will have to be central to our approach as the years unfold. So, ladies and gentlemen, I do believe it's a time of hope for Papua New Guinea. It's certainly a time of change. And as the country's closest partner, we have a responsibility to keep up with up to date on developments there. We certainly shouldn't take a, a static view. At this point, in early 2013, when we think about the future shape of our nearest neighbour, we should be imagining a country led by people more inclined to be assertive and selective in their dealings with us, with a population approaching that of contemporary Australia. Over time, it may well start to play a different kind of role in regional affairs. It will remain confronted by very significant development challenges and yet have access to unprecedented new wealth. It stands to reason, then, that our own relationship with PNG will change. We already recognise that development cooperation is only one part of our relationship and that others, trade, business and investment, are becoming increasingly important. As a significant reflection of that, the two foreign ministers last December initialled a new economic cooperation treaty, replacing the existing development cooperation treaty as the key linchpin in the official relationship. We also need to appreciate that the new dynamism of PNG is attracting the interest of others. The US has strengthened its interest in PNG in recent years, establishing a small US aid presence in Moresby. Secretary Clinton conducted a visit there in recent years. This can be seen, I think, as a welcome development in the context of the Obama administration's pivot to Asia. It also stands alongside the involvement of ExxonMobil as the lead partner in the LNG project. China's pioneering investment in the resources sector, the Ramuniko mine, is now in operation after some protracted start-up difficulties. PNG is looking to raise some capital from China to assist in the rehabilitation of transport infrastructure, roads and ports. What should our response to all this be? Well, I think it should be to engage constructively those who take a constructive interest in Papua New Guinea. We, Australians, have a level of experience and expertise in the conduct of development in Papua New Guinea that no other external party can hope to match. And it's important that we put that experience at the disposal of other cooperative partners. PNG's transition has the potential to change 
regional dynamics in another important way. A more confident, populous and wealthy PNG will naturally look to play a different kind of role in the Pacific region. We've already seen the O'Neill government start to play a more influential role in relation to the situation in Fiji. PNGs can now be described as a long-standing troop contributor to the regional assistance mission in Solomon Islands. It now has UN military observers in North Africa. PNG played quite an influential role in building support in the PNG, in the Pacific region rather, for Australia's own Security Council candidacy. From Australia's perspective, this is a terribly important and potentially very positive thing. We have a new kind of regional partner in the making. We certainly shouldn't think defensively about these adjustments in the outlook of PNG or in the approaches of our major strategic and economic partners. To think about these issues in terms of strategic competition would be small and defensive. The ballast provided by our geography and our common history, the extent to which Papua New Guineans feel comfortable with Australia, the patterns of cooperation, the links provided by education, all these things should give us great confidence as we contemplate the future of our own links with our northern neighbour. And as we contemplate the challenges Papua New Guinea will continue to face, we'll need to keep working to ensure that we are the best kind of friend we can possibly be. To achieve that, we need to recognise it's changing. We need to keep up. Thank you very much. Okay, I think we've run out of time, unfortunately. But um, I guess the, what we can sense from all the questions is how much people really want to know about what's happening in PNG. And it was such a wonderful opportunity to hear from you tonight. Um, my name is Russell Storer. I'm the head of Asian and Pacific Art here at the Queensland Art Gallery. And it gives me great pleasure to do a short vote of thanks to um, Ian Kemish for his presentation. Um, I mean, one of the things I think that came out of your talk and a word that recurred over and over again is the word confidence. And that's certainly something that we found with the APT and the PNG artists that we spent two months with here in Brisbane and working with them to develop the projects here was the enormous confidence that the artists felt in their culture and their strength and belief in, in PNG. And, um, you know, they're wearing their PNG T-shirts and there's a PNG flag if you look closely up in... Um, the Kwama Spirit House, um, there's a real sense of, of national pride. And I think that really came through in your conversation um, tonight about not only cultural confidence, but also real confidence in the future and about what's possible. And the fact that that changing relationship with Australia is really about a partnership and an equality um, rather than looking at old sort of colonial kind of um, attitudes and, and preconceptions. Um, so I thank you very much for giving us such an incisive and wide-ranging presentation. It's been very illuminating and we thank you very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.